to love the world and the lusts that are contained therein is to reject the saving grace of God. And so, whenever professing Christians seek worldly pursuits, they place themselves in a very dangerous position, whereby they not only jeopardize themselves, but the commission to advance the kingdom of God. Our Old Covenant reading coming from the book of Haggai, the entire chapter, Haggai and chapter 1. Beloved of the Lord, as God rebukes the people of Judah for focusing upon worldly pursuits, by inspiration of God, the prophet writes, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shentiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Josedek the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Ye have sown much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? because of mine house that is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house. Therefore, the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Chentiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people did fear before the Lord. Then spake Haggai, the Lord's messenger, in the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, in the four and twentieth day of the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. John in his first epistle, chapter 2, beginning in verse 15 through verse 17, by the same spirit that rebuked the people of Judah, so does John write. By inspiration of God, he says this, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. 
Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers. The flower thereof fades away, but the word of our God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day with all of its requirements and all of its responsibilities. So no sooner were God's people liberated from the bondage of their exile did they return to the pursuits of worldliness, self-satisfying interests. And it wasn't so much that they were sinning by blatantly rebelling, but they had misplaced their focus, not realizing why they had been freed from their captivity, which actually boarded on idolatrous worldliness. You see, they had been in bondage for so long, finally liberated, and yet not really understanding exactly why they were liberated. And this is made evident by the first chapter of the prophet. In verse 1, God is careful to set the timeline before us to show exactly when this misplaced focus takes place. Notice, in the second year of Darius the king, In the sixth month, in the first day of the month, God finally speaks to the people of Judah. Came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet. Now it is likely that Haggai was born in Babylon during the exile, which would make him keenly aware of the hardships that the people of God had to face and what had befallen the people during that very humiliating era. And so now, recognizing that humiliation, that bondage, that slavery... Now, having come out of that period into a period of liberty and peace, which verse 1 teaches, instead of embracing the lesson and the many lessons that that their chastisement was to teach them, instead of saying, now that we're free, let's work for the kingdom. Instead of embracing that lesson, the chastisement was to teach them, Israel, the people of God, back into their old ways of sloth and misappropriation of their time and energy. All of their time and their energy were no longer focused upon God, but upon themselves. There was a, a misplaced zeal, a loss of focus. They lost the most elemental aspect of Christianity, the fear of the Lord and the willingness to serve Him. Now, according to the timeline of verse 1, Israel would have been out of the Babylonian exile for a number of years. It wasn't just one year or two years. It was quite a number of years. Some theologians estimate 20 years, while others say it may be as long as 60 years. This time elapse is important because it wasn't just one day. They had a lot of days. They had a lot of years to recognize that they had not been fulfilling their requirement. So At this point, Israel was liberated for many years and still they had not focused upon the building of God's house, the building of God's kingdom. The temple still was lying waste and nothing was being done about it. In fact, all kinds of excuses, not only were they not doing anything, they were making all kinds of excuses not to rebuild the temple. All kinds of excuses were made in order to legitimize Israel's irresponsibility. Haggai's prophetic utterance was a stern rebuke against a people who had experienced both the chastening hand of God and His mercy. But they failed to understand why they had to be punished and why His mercy was given. Israel was still completely and perhaps even even perhaps willfully ignorant of the commission that they had for the building of the temple. The reason why they were liberated was so that they would rebuild the temple. Not so that they would make excuses for not rebuilding the temple. 
Now consider to whom, and three times God tells us to whom the word of the Lord came. In the second year, Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. God gives his message initially to Haggai the prophet so that he might engage the two most important leaders of the nation, Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, and Joshua, the high priest. Note, God through the prophet is engaging the civil governor, the civil magistrate, and the ecclesiastical governor, the ecclesiastical magistrate. Both rulers of the religious realm and the secular realm. Now these three men, the prophet, the civil realm, and the ecclesiastical realm, these three representatives are expressly commissioned to bring the reproving word of God to the people. And it is here where we have represented by these three men the threefold office of the Lord Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king. For these three are representing Christ. And it will be from these men, from these three, that the word of the Lord, and I must stress this, that whenever there's great and glorious, long-lasting reformation and reconstruction, it has to come from those three areas. They have to be harmoniously speaking the same thing. So what we have from these three men, that the word of the Lord comes, they, from this position of prophet, priest, and king, they are going to now distribute to the people the rebuke of God for their learning, their repentance, and ultimately what they're looking for is their response. So whenever the word of God is preached, it is not only for the learning, because knowledge just puffs up. The word of the Lord is preached for a response. What we have here in the prophet, priest, and king is the foundation of national leadership. If we are to have an enduring national leadership, which is God-centered, it must come from those offices. Each of these offices account for a powerful bulwark against evil and the perversion of justice. Each of these three offices are essential to good and godly governance. Now notice how important it is for the entire leadership to have the word of God declared to them so that they might be reoriented toward the will of God. Note also how the role of the prophet and the priest is given preeminence in the same way as the civil magistrate in the role of government. We can never say that, well, the civil magistrate is a secular ruler. He has nothing to do with things of religion. We have to say no. According to this example, we have to make sure that even those in civil office have to be given the word of God. And hopefully, they will respond as Zerubbabel. It is also obvious that each of these three offices are commissioned with one thing, the building of the temple, which is another way of identifying the kingdom of God. For what is the temple of God but the people of God? We are the temple of God. Think about it. Think about what Paul says. Paul enlightens us to this very fact in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Notice what he says. And notice how God's word is defining his own terms. 
So when we ask the question, what is the kingdom of God? We let the Bible define and tell us what the kingdom of God is. Notice, 1 Corinthians 3.17 If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. You are the temple of God, he says. So the temple of God is not a building, it's an organism. 1 Corinthians 6.19 What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? Peter adds this confirmation in 1 Peter 2, 1 and following. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also, notice, you also, as living stones, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. We are the temple of God. We are the spiritual house. And so what we must recognize is the temple that was being disregarded by God's people after they were released from exile represents the body of Christ. Now, was it a physical temple? Yes, it was, historically speaking. But there's more here than just a physical temple. Furthermore, the temple itself also represents the kingdom of God. And so what Israel, with Judah, Israel, the people of God here in Haggai's day, what they were to be doing once they were released from bondage, from the bondage of the Babylonian captivity, what they were to be doing, once they were released from that bondage, was to build the kingdom of God by reconstructing the temple of God. Note the excuse for not fulfilling her purpose. Verse 2, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts. And notice, whenever God uses this phrase, the Lord of hosts, it's actually Jehovah or Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of forces. He is speaking of himself as the God of armies who is going to rebuild the temple by his people so that he can conquer. So, thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, this people, the people that he's chastising, the people that he is rebuking through Haggai, this people say, the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. They were making excuses this was a testimony of the people's irresponsibility, but it was a testimony of irresponsibility undergirded by a love of the world. Consider actually what they were saying. It's not time to build God's kingdom. I ask this, when is it not time to build the kingdom of God? There is no time when it is not time. And yet they are saying, it's not time yet. And yet, Unbeknownst to them, because of their misplaced focus, because of their zeal for the things of the world and not the things of God, and yet they misunderstood the reason why they were delivered. It was precisely to build the kingdom, to build the temple. Today's modern church is very much like Israel and Judah in the days of Haggai on both a practical level and a spiritual theological level. Consider first the theological level of irresponsibility. 
In order to put off the work which is needful for the reconstruction of the culture, the modern church has embraced the idea that the world belongs to the secularists. The world belongs to the wicked. The world belongs to the devil. And in light of this doctrine, the natural response is, well, there's no reason why we should seek to build the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is not yet. But it will come when Christ returns in the clouds of glory on the last day. And then the kingdom of God will come. So, so they're pulling back from their responsibility to advance the kingdom of God, to build the temple of the Lord. But this idea flies in the face of honest hermeneutics. When Jesus taught the apostles to pray, and notice, over 2,000 years ago, he says, pray in this way, thy kingdom come, and then he clearly says this, on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come on earth. You see, he was predicting both a theological and historical reality. First, it was historical in that the kingdom was to come on earth. Second, it was to be patterned, and that's what it means, on earth as it is in heaven. It was to be patterned after heavenly things, which means that the kingdom would be structured by God's laws of righteousness, justice, and equity. And the way that the kingdom would be built is through the preaching of the word of God. And as we preach the word of God, we are bringing in people into the kingdom, into the fact that they become part of the temple of God. And we're building both the temple and the kingdom. Paul tells us what the kingdom of God will finally look like. Romans chapter 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. So once we are redeemed and receive the new birth, we are translated into the kingdom of God, which is simply another way of stating that we are now part of the temple of God, which symbolizes the kingdom of God. And the way I see it is this. As people begin to experience the new birth, more and more and more people experience the new birth, and the kingdom advances. The kingdom advances. And their influence advances in the culture in the time and in the history that they live. In a real way, the body of Christ is the kingdom of God. Speaking of the Christ, the Apostle Paul again explains. Notice Colossians chapter 1. In verse 13 and verse 14. Speaking of Christ, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Now notice the past tense of the verb hath. He hath. It has been done already. Once you are born again, you are now translated into the kingdom of God. Therefore, whenever we share the gospel, we are at work in the building of the temple of God and that means we are at work in the advancement of His kingdom. And whenever an individual is actually regenerated and translated into the kingdom of God, that's when the kingdom advances. And this is why we are to continue to preach, not only to governors, but also to regular folk. When the Lord Jesus Christ spoke at the Last Supper, He clearly stated, and I've said this so many times, He clearly stated that He would not eat or drink until it was fulfilled in the kingdom. When the kingdom came, He said, that's when I'll eat. When the kingdom comes, that's when I'll drink. And then upon His resurrection, He meets with the disciples, His disciples and His apostles, and he eats and he drinks. 
and their eyes are open, signifying that the kingdom had come. But there was another aspect to this revelation. Not only had the kingdom come, Christ had become the head of the corner. And what does that even mean? He's the cornerstone of the temple of God. And the temple of God is his body. And this is why he told the wicked rulers that if they destroyed the temple of his body, he would raise it up at the last day. The the problem was that they kept thinking physically, oh, if you destroy this temple, how are you going to raise it up? It took us 40 years to do this. You're going to do it in three days? They missed the point. Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he, Christ, spake of the temple of his body, because that's what was important. That was the essence of the building of the kingdom. That was the essence of advancing the kingdom of God. To bring righteousness and justice and peace and equity and joy in the Holy Ghost into the realm of the culture by the people of God, the body of Christ. At the time of his resurrection, not only did Jesus resurrect his own body, and you think about this, he was talking about his body. Notice, but he spake of the temple of his body. He said, I'm going to raise it up. And we keep saying, well, he's going to raise up his own body. But with that resurrection, he raises up all of us. So at the time of his resurrection, not only did Jesus resurrect his own body, he resurrected the body, the body of his saints. The elect shared in that resurrection in principle only to experience it in actuality, in time and in history when God actually regenerated it. One other point. The resurrection of Christ, the Bible teaches us that the resurrection of Christ was accomplished by the power of God. Now that might seem elemental. Of course the resurrection was by the power of God. Now this same resurrection, however, is what establishes the kingdom of God. So the same power that raised Christ from the dead establishes the kingdom of God. Notice, this is the intention of Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Now Jesus is not saying, and too often people think that Oh, he's saying that people are going to live. No, Jesus is not saying that some of these people will live for thousands of years until the final coming of Christ. But rather, he's saying that some of them will be saved by the power of God unto salvation before they die. Notice, there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. You see, Jesus told Nicodemus that unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So all Jesus is saying in Mark chapter 9, he's giving a testimony of salvation. Some of them will not see death until they have seen the kingdom of God. They'll be born again before they see death, which is a good thing. That's what we all want. But once a man is born again, not only is he able to enter the kingdom of God, he is then able to see the kingdom of God. Then he enters in, and that's all by the power of God. So, what are we to look at, or how are we to understand the kingdom of God? It is the people of God. Paul explains it this way in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 4. For though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God, 
For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. So Jesus tells the apostles that they would receive power from on high at the coming of the Spirit. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me in both Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So even before his ascension, Jesus tells his disciples that the power of God was theirs to command. That's another thing that we miss. Those of us who truly are the temple of God, those of us who truly have the Spirit of God, those of us who truly are the representation of the kingdom of God, we also have the power of God. Notice what Jesus says. Luke chapter 10, verse 19. Behold, I give unto you power, authority, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. It is the gospel, Paul says, which is the power of God. And yet we mostly are hiding it under a bushel. We're not setting it upon a candlestick. We're hiding it under a bushel because we have pursued the things of the world more than the things of God. You see, the modern church has manufactured doctrines which move the coming of the kingdom far into the future when Jesus finally comes at the end of the world, which is the same thing as saying, it's not time yet to build the kingdom of God. It's not time yet to build the temple of God. But there's a practical problem both that the people of God had at the days of Haggai and us today, and that is worldliness. What was the fundamental problem of the people of Judah in Haggai's day? Worldliness. They were concerned about their own fiefdoms, their sealed houses. Now consider God's rebuke in verse 3 and 4. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? You're building your houses, but the temple of God is lying waste. You're focused upon your own pursuits rather than the pursuits of God. Israel was brought out of their exile specifically to build the kingdom of God. You are brought out of sin. You are taken from the wrath of God in order to build the kingdom of God. You see, Israel had been so busied with their domestic lives that they lost sight of the reason why they were delivered. And today's church folk, much like Judah, Israel, and all of the apostates of the ancient days, have lost all sense of the purpose behind why they were redeemed. Why were we born again? Why were we given the redemption from the precious blood of Christ Well, the purpose of redemption is not so that Christians could look forward to heaven after their death while they sow the seeds of complacency and worldly pursuits. The purpose of the redeemed is to build the kingdom of God by the power that works effectually in them. This is what Israel failed to do as a result of their self-centeredness, their selfishness, their lack of, of focus, their lack of prioritization. Consider the rebuke. Now therefore, verse 5, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. It's as if God is saying, Examine yourself. Examine where is your heart. Really, where is your heart? God calls the people here to examine carefully what they're doing. In other words, He's asking, What is your real focus? 
not only on the Lord's Day, but every day. I find it problematic even on the Lord's Day. People can't even give up their own pursuits on the Lord's Day, which is God's Day. So he's asking them, what is their focus? What is their end goal? What is your end goal? Christian, I ask you, what is your end goal? To get bigger houses? A raise? A new career? What's your goal? If it's not the glory of God, then your goal is truncated. If it's not the building of the kingdom, then your goal is truncated. If it's not the building of the temple, then your goal is truncated. It is not God-glorifying. So the question is, what was Judah's goal? What was Israel's goal? Another question which might be posed is, what is it? And this is what you have to ask yourself. What is it that drives you? What really drives you? What, what is it that drove Israel? Well, it was 20 years, maybe even more, since they were brought out of exile and they still were making excuses for the building of the temple. They were not driven by the love of the Lord. They were not driven by the fear of God. You have to ask yourself the question, what is it that drives you? The love of God and the passion to see His kingdom advance? Or is it a love of self and the building of your own worldly fiefdoms? You know, when Jesus stood on the Mount of Olivet, He gave what is known as the Beatitudes. And He said, those who are blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And that would translate into those who hunger and thirst after building the kingdom. Because the kingdom is, as Paul defines it, righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Ghost. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Or, let me put it in another way, blessed are those that hunger and thirst after the building of the kingdom. So the question we ask ourselves each and every day, is what drives us. And this is what God is calling all of His people to consider. Now God then argues His case in order to prove to Israel that if they do not fill their God-given purpose in life, if they don't fulfill that purpose, they will forever be disappointed, unfulfilled, unproductive, and dissatisfied. Are you dissatisfied? Do you feel unproductive? Do you feel less fulfilled in what you're doing, disappointed in your life. Notice what he says. You have sown much. Work, 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 work. Work, 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 work. You've sown much, but you bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. He clothed you, but there's none warm, and he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. So what is God saying? He's saying after all of your work, after all of your plans, after all of your purchases of worldly possessions, monetary savings, all of the investings, without fulfilling your responsibility, your redemptive purpose, it all amounts to nothing. Failure to accomplish one's divine purpose leads to frustration, anger, and ultimately loss. Every worldly thing that is sought after evaporates. Make no mistake about it. As the literal Hebrew describes, you place your hard-earned wages into a bag that is pierced through with holes. Now in the second rebuke, God again reminds these people 
Consider your ways. Second time he says it. Examine yourself. Now, now the people of God here might have thought that God was well pleased with them since they had been delivered. Would you think so? I've got salvation now. I'm out of bondage. I'm out of, of the Babylonian difficulties. Um, God must love me because he saved me. But he saved us for a purpose. That's what they missed. Why did he redeem them from the hand of their enemies? They might have concluded if they were out of favor with him. Perhaps they thought that simply by living a moral life. And that's what the Christians today think. Christians today, even in the Reformed circles, they think that simply living a moral life of obedience, as they define obedience, of going to church when it's convenient, or raising a family, sort of, maybe not too diligently because it'll all work out, or maybe if we're just home educating, that's a shoe-in, or having theological discussions. All of these things, if we're doing these things, we are fulfilling what's required of us. Perhaps that's what these people thought. That's what the modern church thinks. As long as I live a moral life, as long as I'm not committing uh, murder and adultery and all of these wicked things, as long as I'm raising a family in home education atmospheres or having able to have a theological discussion or teaching a Bible study or, or children's church or whatever, that's enough. And if it's convenient, I'll get there on the Lord's Day. But they were wrong. They were so wrong. They were delivered in order to be temple builders, kingdom builders. They had been taken from being bondmen to sin and the enemy to being bondmen to righteousness and God. You see, we just don't become free from sin and death in the grave. We're freed in order to become bondmen to Christ. Slavery is taken from one thing and given to another. And so God tells them what to do. Because if he left it up to them, they might still make excuses for what was required of them. You know, without God's word reproving us and telling us what we should be doing, we would just do whatever we wanted. So God tells them this. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build a house and I will take pleasure in it and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. I asked this question this morning in our study. What is the one thing that God wants? What is the one thing that God lives for? Not having beginning, not having end, the one thing that is ever most on his mind, what is that one thing that he lives for? To be glorified. He deserves it. He demands it. And we glorify him by obeying Him. So practically speaking, the people here are told to go into the forest, which is upon the mountain, obviously, and get all the building materials to build the temple. But again, there's a spiritual dimension to this commandment. Whenever mountains are mentioned in Scripture, it refers to kingdoms, whether it's the kingdom of God or the kingdom of man. In the latter case, when used to signify the kingdom of man, Jesus tells the apostles this, Matthew 17, 20 and following. And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, 
a wicked kingdom. Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. But in Haggai's situation, the mountain here refers to the kingdom of God, or more specifically, the place where God resides. Go up to the mountain. Go to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was a representation of the throne of God, where he gave his law to Israel. Go and find out what I want from you. Go to the mountain and bring wood. And it was here where Moses at Mount Sinai first encounters the Lord as the burning bush that was not consumed by the fire of God's wrath. Notice Exodus 3, 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. In Ezekiel 28, God tells us that Eden, the Garden of Eden, was placed on a mountain which God called the mountain of God. And it was in Eden, interestingly enough, upon that mountain where God gave Adam his dominion covenant mandate. And that mandate was subdue the earth and take dominion over it. So the mountain is the place not only of worship, but it is the place of worship where we, on the Lord's day, And this is why it is so important for you to be here in the Lord's house on the Lord's day, on time, well equipped, with a good night's sleep, children trained to obey and sit and hear the word of the Lord. This is why it's so important because on the Lord's day, it's where we hear the word of God expounded so that we are equipped to take that dominion. Go up to the mountain, bring wood and build my temple because without the Lord's word expounded to us, we would not know what to do. Neglect the Sabbath and you neglect your commission. So this is where, on the Lord's Day especially, more so than during the week, because during the week we have all the noise. You have all the noise of the world. You go to work, you've got to deal with your work, you've got to deal with this, you're dealing with the kids, you're dealing with the other things. But on the Lord's Day, it's the only day where the world is not screaming at you. It's the only day where God's Word is the focus. It's the only day where you'll be told things that you don't want to hear, but which are so important for your life that you must hear it on that Lord's Day. So going up to the mountain is important because it is here that God is telling Israel that when you go up to the mountain as it was in the days of Eden and Adam getting his dominion mandate covenant commission, that you are going to take dominion by the building of the temple, by the building of the kingdom. God is telling Israel to take dominion, advance the kingdom of God, build the temple, go up to the mountain, build the body of Christ. And so when the psalmist says that the mountains will bring peace to the people, He is referring to the kingdom of God, which brings peace. Notice Psalm 72, verse 3. The mountains shall bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. Psalm 72 declares that the gospel, characterized by a handful of corn, literally the wheat kernel, will be in the earth upon the top of the mountains, bringing fruit, causing the city of God to flourish. Notice Psalm 72, 16. There shall be an handful of corn in the earth upon the top of the mountains. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, and they of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. Isaiah gives the post-millennial hope that the mountain of the Lord's house will one day be established in its 
fulfillment, in his completeness, in his perfection. Notice what he says. Isaiah 2.2 2. And it shall come to pass in the last day. When is that day? The New Testament age. Peter as much defined when the last day was. It began at Pentecost. Notice. And it shall, and I emphasize the shall, and it shall come, and I will say this as a caveat, provided the people of God focus on their responsibilities. It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. Why aren't the nations flowing unto the church of Jesus Christ? If that's the testimony of God from Isaiah, if that's the end result of Isaiah, why are we now in this predicament? Sloth. Misplaced focus worldly pursuits, laziness. Israel had hoped that once they were delivered from their exile, they were free to do whatever they wanted. You know, that's the way it is today with Christians. Well, I'm not going to hell now, so I could do whatever I want. And again, they were terribly mistaken. In the same way that Christians forgot that they are bought with a price and that they were no longer their own, but rather a living sacrifice called to take up the cross of Christ and follow Him. What had happened to those terms? Take up your cross and follow me, he said. Render your body a living sacrifice. You are not of your own, but you belong to someone else. Stop building your own house and get to work on the temple of the Lord. Ye look for much, Haggai says, and lo, it came to little... And when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is laid waste. And ye run every man unto his own house. Selfishness. God then explains that while Israel had hoped to become personally prosperous, they actually did not. And they were ignorant as to why. So God tells them why he destroyed their work by his spirit blowing upon him. Because of mine house, he says, that is light waste. And ye run every man to his own house. God's house, his kingdom, is God's concern. God is not concerned that you're happy. God is concerned that you're faithful. And sometimes, fidelity means that we are very much perplexed. So this is how we ought to pray. Thy kingdom come on earth. Not my kingdom come on earth. John warns this, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world passes away and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God. Notice the response of the new birth. The doing of the will of God. Glorifying God. Building the temple. Building the kingdom. He abides forever. So as a result of Israel's self-focused, selfish, self-centered life, God brings them down once again by negating all of their labor in verse 10 and 11. Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I call for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil. In other words, people are getting the gospel, but they're not hearing it. It's not taking an effect. But by the grace of God, as a result of His merciful intervention, He stirs up Zerubbabel and Joshua with the remnant of the people to do the work of building the temple and in doing so, advancing the kingdom of God. Notice verse 14. And the Lord, and this is just amazing, 
that he didn't just send them back to Babylon. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shantiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. Notice it doesn't say all the people. All the remnant of the people. The people that truly were God's people. Because only they will be stirred. So the question that we ask is, are we being stirred? And if we're not, we need to ask another question. Are we part of the remnant? And all the remnant of the people, and they came and they did work. Notice, there's a response. There was a response, an active response to the commandment to build the temple. And they did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. There's one final point, however, that needs to be made. Before the Spirit stirs up the people, God promises them that He will be with them in the work. And this is just amazing. Notice, Then spake Haggai, the Lord's messenger, in the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. So, the remnant of the people, they hear the word. Joshua, Zerubbabel, all of them ready to build the temple. And God gives them that one component which is so important. Notice verse 12. And Zerubbabel, the son of Shentiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord. There's the response. In the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God said, sent him, and the people did fear. And the people did fear, because that's what happens when God's people are stirred. The fear of the Lord. I think that's what's missing in our church today. I think we need a Sinai experience where we stand again at the bottom of the mountain quaking and trembling because of the trumpet blast and the lightning and the voices and the thunder. And we beg, have mercy, have mercy. And the fear of the Lord came upon the people. And that's when God said, I am with you. Because God will only be with those who fear Him. That begins our wisdom. Imagine God calling us to do a thing, but then leaving us to do it all of ourselves. But He doesn't. He says, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. He's not going to leave us to do it alone. And this is what Jesus tells us. As He told His disciples after commanding them to go into all the world to build the kingdom of God by preaching the gospel. Notice what He says. Matthew 28, 18 and following. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto Me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, notice there's the commission, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. I would say this, Go ye therefore and build the kingdom of God. Build the temple of the Lord. Build the body of Christ. I am the cornerstone. I am the chief cornerstone. And as I've resurrected my own body, I've resurrected the body. Go into all the world, baptizing all nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. And that's just so amazing to me. But then he says this, And behold, I am with you always in order to accomplish the work even unto the end of the world. Amen. May God be pleased to grant to us such an appetite to build His kingdom, especially now that we have been brought out of bondage, 
purchased by His blood, taken from our sin, the bondage of wicked men who have sought to destroy us. Let us then examine ourselves and begin to obey by building the kingdom. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.